It's Throwback Thursday. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Throwback Thursday. We're trying something new here, Chris. Yeah, we've been getting some messages and some DMs and some Facebook posts in our group where people ask for guests that we've already had. I can't really just assume that everyone's going to go back through our back catalog and listen to old episodes, but you should because the episodes are evergreen. You can listen to them 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and the story behind the song remains the same. That's right, Chris. You know, not everyone is a podcast aficionado such as yourself. When mm-hmm. I got into this, I didn't know much about it. And yeah, you can go on to uh, whatever app you use uh, to, to, to hear podcasts and go back in time. And all the episodes, like Chris said, are evergreen. They're going to be out there forever, which takes us back uh, to this first episode we're doing in honor of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, who just announced their breakup. Uh, we're going to rewind back to March 8th, 2021, episode number 41, with Dick. Dickie Barrett and Joe Gittleman breaking down the impression that I get. Yeah, we're going to save people the effort of having to scroll for like 20 seconds back to episode 41. And we're going to play this again in honor of the legacy of an amazing band. So without any further ado, here's episode 41 featuring Dickie Barrett and Joe Gittleman of the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Hey, rude boys and rude girls, have we got a good one for you today. My friends Dickie Barrett and Joe Gittleman from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones drop by to discuss their breakout hit single, The Impression That I Get, taken from their 1997 album, Let's Face It. Dickie shares the very personal inspiration behind the lyrics and the song's inception. Joe takes us back to their humble rehearsal space in Boston, where the song was initially crafted, and surprisingly explains to me that, at the time, it just felt like another song in their repertoire. I brought up the fact that an old manager of mine told me a story about the song's meaning that I always believed to be true, and as it turns out, she wasn't too far off. And we dive into the brand new Boston single, The Final Parade, taken from their upcoming new studio album that features the who's who of the ska community. For all this and more, grab your pork pie hat and dust off that suit. We'll see you on the dance floor. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. You know, I was trying to put together an intro for you guys this morning. I don't even know how, where I would start to introduce Dickie Barrett and Joe Gittleman from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones from a personal standpoint. For my listeners, I'm sure 99.9% of you know who the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones are. I am super stoked to have you guys on the show today. And uh, Dickie and Joe have agreed to break down the impression that I get. And we're also, at the end of the episode, later on, we're going to talk about their brand new single that I was fortunate enough to be featured on and uh, very excited about it the final parade ah uh, yes we're gonna break these down but we got to leave time to put them back together we can't just leave them heaped on the floor <laughs> no okay. we don't want to do that we don't we don't want to do that the impression that i get uh released on the record let's face it on march 11th 1997 produced by uh, paul coldery and sean slade and this was your fifth full-length record band was formed in 1983 first record devil's night out was in 89 i first heard that record in 1990 
you guys uh, toured at that point more than any band that you were just a total blueprint for what less than Jake wanted to do. Uh, I saw you probably a dozen times before we got on the 97 warp tour when impression was blowing up. So between question, the answers in 1994 and uh, 1997 when let's face it was released do you guys remember when impression was written i remember writing impression shortly before the record came out i guess you know within a year's time of before the record came out me and me and uh, joe got together and joe had the music and i had some lyrics and then we it was at a time where you couldn't you know send files to each other or you, yeah. you had to be in the same room and you walked away maybe with a with a boombox cassette that you tried to write to at home. And I, yeah, I can remember that. I remember writing the lyrics at a friend's brother's funeral. And, and we were at that, their house in Canton, Massachusetts. And I was sitting on the porch and it was, and it was a young guy, very young guy, maybe two years older than me. And, and he uh, passed away young and the family was just devastated as you would well imagine. And, and, um, so I started writing the lyrics then kind of, you know, trying to undo the Rubik's Cube that is loss and pain and, and the th things like that. And, and, you know, what it meant to me and what it, what it meant to the family and what I was witnessing. So um, put together these lyrics. I didn't want them to be too much, but I didn't want them to not say anything. And it was more poetry than anything else. And then it was time to make a record. And I, and I said, well, I have these and, we started working on it. You know, Joe can jump in at any time, but so many different things were going on at that time. We were sort of being challenged. Up until then, we had been making like anti-song records. Like if it if it felt too much like a like a song or what's been done in the past, then we would scrap it. Or if we were if we were had a good groove going, we'd say, "All right, en enough of that. Enough of that. Let's kick somebody in the balls." And you know, <laughs> that's sort of what the punk Scott thing was all about. It was, you know, we'll lull people into a false sense of security and then hit them over the head with something. We loved songwriting. We loved songs, but that we felt we could fuck them up better than we could <laughs> at that, at an early age, better than we could actually make them. So then we just felt challenged. We, we were like, people are letting us do this. We're, we're making records. People are coming to see us play and they're calling us songwriters. So let's maybe get a little bit serious. So, so that sort of was going on at the same time at that, you know, when we're starting to write, let's face it, there was a new president at the record label that we, we ended up on. And it was Danny Goldberg, who, who's known for, for Nirvana and managing Nirvana and, and you know, so, sort of legendary in, in the industry. And he challenged me and he said, you, you know, you're afraid to make a good record and you're afraid to make good songs. Wow. And, and he knew, he knew where to hit me because to this day, you know, being afraid is just, this is not in my vocabulary. And, and he was, you know, and he kept saying that to me and I, you know, I gave him a bunch of fuck yous and I'm not afraid of anything. Then I thought about it and the other guys in the band were anxious to start writing songs that, that, you know, in, the, in a more traditional sense. So that's what we were doing. And, and it was a little bit awkward, like walking in mud at first and, uh, uh, you know, like so many things at that time is like people like the ska music all of a sudden turning into death metal. So, you know, should we change that formula? Who knows? But then we started to get into it and started to enjoy it. And, and I'm joking, tell you, I'm the 
insane fan of like radio gold and and all the hits of the 70s and and songs are always kind of been really important to me so that's what we were doing joe you still there i'm here i'm here Dan. <laughs> <laughs> am i boring you i'm just listening I, i'm learning i'm learning a lot <laughs> I'm learning. i am i am too take take it away dickie this is great anyway so a lot of the stuff i wrote was very wordy it was word gymnastics or, or word salad where it would just the words would just keep coming at you and i love that and I, and I and i thought that that's what i did the best was was writing words and putting words together and i felt like a word blacksmith i'd hammer this word in there and go oh wow and that was what i had to offer because they they were really getting good through all the road work and and you mentioned the road work and that was all joe joe just figured that out and stuffed us all in a van and off we went and you know never came home they were getting you know great at it and really really good but my if i called myself mediocre people would debate that singer but I knew that I could put words together. And that's what I was offering. Basically, long story short, Dick and I have been trying to figure out ways to run from real life for a long time now. And, <laughs> and that is, a lot of that has come down to, come, come down to writing songs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if we had to write songs, we, then we will. What do we got to do? Yeah. Well, I got to jump in here. You know, your your first four records, and if you include if you include uh, Scott Core, The Devil, and more, the EP, you know, your first five records, it was just boom, boom. It was 89, 91, 92, 93, 94. Uh, then, of course, you guys stuffed in the Lollapalooza tour in 95. There was a lot going on. So, you know, this was your longest gap between records up to that point, 94 to 97. Joe, do you remember your initial reaction when you saw the lyrics from Dickie, what, what you thought of them? Good question. You know, uh... I can remember very clearly in the studio the first time he he that that sort of that scream into the chorus came in. <laughs> yeah, like that that was something that really changed changed the song for me. You know, I I will say though, just from my end, just on the composing on the music side of it and the melodies and and the bits that I kind of you know little whistling things that I brought to the table um, with Dick. That intro, you know, when I was that that guitar lick for the intro of impression i didn't really realize at the time it took me a while but i knew i was trying to kind of figure out something that that actually is is only a chord or two away from um a pachelbel canon in d that wedding kind of chord progression yeah That was a he was a, a German-born composer Johann Pachelbel in the 1600s. I know that Joe. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well. Well, we did the yeah. we did the warp tour with him. We did the warp tour with him early on. He wasn't on the main stage, but he was there. I, I check him out. He was, he was the bar, barbecue band. I think it was the barbecue yeah. band. I know this stuff, Professor. <laughs> so listen, it's a it's a it's a song that is very commonly played. It's a formal song played at weddings. Perhaps listeners of this podcast will remember it from uh, "Dude, Where's My Car." It was also <laughs> can also see it in there. Does anybody ever remember the, the sequel to "Dude's Where's Where's My Car"? Seriously, dude, where's my car? <laughs> Is there any chance you guys would ever make a sequel? There, there's a script for it. There, there is it. actually a script. It's called "Seriously, Dude, Where's My Car." 
<laughs> which is the appropriate title. That's sure the is. perfect sequel title. It's just we've just never it's never got home yet. It just right. hasn't gotten to a place where like people are like, yeah, let's make it. Right, but, right. I mean, I, I would do it. When I remember Joe is when we and I say about the studio, and I don't mean the recording studio. I mean our practice space, and we were sitting down, and you know we wanted to write simpler choruses, but I just couldn't. I couldn't scale down that chorus. And you were like, you know, can't you just have it come up with like, you know, three or four words, come up with one solid message, and then we'll repeat that. And I couldn't do it. Like that never had to knock on wood, how it just kept, the words just kept coming at you. And then it kind of soured me on the song. And then I'm like, ah, which, you know, until it started blowing up, I, I was so unsure of it, you know? And an interesting thing, you mentioned that scream. That scream was Paul Coldry and Sean Slade had just had some success with that song "Creep" by Radiohead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you know that guitar noise that yeah. sets up the chorus. Sets yeah. up the chorus. They got really excited about it. And they go, "Oh, good, we have something to set up the chorus like Creep." So that scream is sort of the, you know, the trick that they did twice, you know, that, that guitar <laughs> noise and my scream are the same sort of, here comes the chorus. Well, but your, your scream was so you, it's so boss tones. And I, I just got, <laughs> I, I just have to say right now that, you know, the nineties were a big time, uh, you know, cries of sellout. If you signed to a major label, if you got on the radio and, you know, I'm sure you guys might've dealt with some of that, but I'm telling you the honest truth. I don't recall one person in the scene that I knew that ever had a bad thing to say about you. When this song hit, we, we were all proud of you. You guys were gods to us you still are you're the godfathers of ska punk and it's like ah thank you no and it's like when this song hit you couldn't cry sellout this was just the to me like a, <laughs> this was a this was a sister uh sibling or you know brother or sibling song to to something like someday i suppose i come back to me and find it maybe i will i should write down a reminder what It was just the next step up from that. I mean, that song was a to me was a radio hit. Uh, it felt but, that way, but we still we still that and and you know with the one two punch of that and Clueless, it was like we were almost challenging people to call us sellouts. But the fact of the matter remained is we did what we wanted exactly what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it, and that was just the natural progression. That's what we were that's what we were heading, and that continues, you know. To be quite honest with you, right? But it's 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 just remarkable that you know ten plus years into your career that this happens, and it's just it just goes to show you. I mean, how much road work you guys did, how much time you put. You played. I saw you in hole in the wall dives to arenas to everything in between up to this point, and you just you put in the work. You played with us in hole in the wall dives. I remember Janice <laughs> Landing. That was like yeah. early nineties, wasn't it? Yeah, it was uh, August 13th, 1994. <laughs> it was so cool. That that was such a cool show and such an incredible place. Your scene and, and everybody there and, and the Janice Landing people, it was 
it was great. Yeah, we had to beg uh, Tony Refugiato, who's known as Daddy Cool, the promoter down there. We had to beg him to get on that show. And actually, a local Tampa band, Maga Dog, had the show, and they had to drop off last minute, and he gave me a call. That was our first big break, was getting in front of your crowd that night. And I'll never forget it, and I, I owe you guys a... I, it was, a, I, I felt like it was your crowd. Uh, well, we, we have maybe had some fans <laughs> there, but that was that was the biggest biggest thing we had ever done, and it was we'll never forget it. I want to jump into the song now and talk about that intro guitar riff is just in terms of a ska song that riff is just it's iconic it's a 20 second intro at some point the band jumps in with just one of the catchiest horn lines ever just makes you want to dance and we come into the first verse and the lyric is have you ever been close to tragedy or been close to folks you have have you ever felt a pain so powerful so heavy you collapse no well and then there's the big eye the scream. big the, the big scream yeah. <laughs> and uh, so if you can set up that first verse of you know i know you had mentioned that your, your friend had passed away but I, this is just what you were feeling on the porch that day you know, by the time you get to me, you, you've already got cavities. There's so many hooks and so, so much. The horn part would be enough to start a song. The guitar part would be enough. I mean, Joe just was relentless. And he, and, and that's why, you know, it's almost a talking verse, you know, it would, which is I'm more than capable of doing. But uh, everything that introduces it is so melodic and props to my buddy who writes like that and and it was by the time you hit that it was you know i could say anything and 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 we were, we were off to the races but the uh first verse is more personal on an individual that's what my friend my high school and long time still friend brian was going through and and, and at that time his own personal loss the second verse is more universal and has to do more with our generation you know of us you know being able to be a ska band and load into a to a van in the nineties and things where, you know, and then now, I mean, I guess now is the answer to that question, you know, is, you know, the, the state of the world now, maybe, maybe there's never been anything like this before. And this is our challenge, you know, but mm -hmm. I just wanted to jump in and, and mention, we were, we were really aware of the fact that we were lucky to be able to do what we were doing, you know, and like we were, we were crossing, into Canada to play Foon Foon Electric like when the Iraq war was starting. You know what I mean? And we were in right. our early 20s at that point, early to mid 20s. So, you know, we were definitely aware that like there were other people who were sacrificing more than us and we were just kind of, you know, we kind of were, were aware that we were just guys playing music, you know, and that other people had, had faced a lot more than we had, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd also like to talk about this first verse, well, through the whole song, but I've mentioned it on this show before, when you can hear a song within a song, and I got to give you props, Joe, that bass line is just, <laughs> it is, it is so good. It's just, it's a, I can, I can zone into just that bass part and get off on that without even listening to the rest of the song. It is, it's, it's, it's awesome, man. Never been close to tragedy, close to folks who have. Right on, thank you. Somebody broke down the song one time on, on, a, on a show where they just kind of took played track by track, the different tracks. And then and it, when it got to the bass line, I was like, oh, my God. You know, it does definitely completely stand on its own. But for me, and being able to 
having worked with Joe for a long time, there's so many of his bass lines that do just that. So, mm-hmm. and when you tip, you know, a lot of times when you have bass lines that busy and other uh, genres of music, they'll step on the vocal. You can you can get away with it if it's a great bass line uh, in ska more often than other genres for whatever reason. And this bass line just sits there and it doesn't fight the vocal. It doesn't fight what the band's doing. It's it's yeah. it's so it's so great. I mean, I, I think that's also about the vocal. You know, those chords are moving fast. They're not staying in, in, put very long. The bass is doing a lot, but that vocal melody really is just sort of, you know, built around a few notes, you know? Mm-hmm. I think, too, if you have a vocalist that you actually want to step on, then it, that's <laughs> helpful, too. Well, that's, you know... I wouldn't want to step on you, Dick, but... but uh, <laughs> Thank you. Something I noticed when I was uh, dissecting the song, at 38 seconds, this is quick. You're into this first chorus. And yeah, there's a lot of info here. There's a lot of words, but... I don't know if you could have scaled this back. I, you know, I can't see this being anything but it was. And the lyric is, "I've never had to knock on wood, but I know someone who has," which makes me wonder if I could. It makes me wonder if I've never had to knock on wood, and I'm glad I haven't yet because I'm sure it isn't good. That's the impression that I get, and I'll never forget Lesson Jake's first manager. You know, she had told me that this song was about abortion. And for years, I thought that that's what it was. And I, up until probably today, I just was, I, I never was for certain of that, but I never heard another explanation of this song. You know, never had to knock on wood. I hope my girlfriend's not pregnant type of thing. So <laughs> to hear you talk about the song now is just funny to me. For 25 years, my old manager was, couldn't have been more wrong. But that line, I've never, I've never had well, to knock on wood. No, not really. There, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Okay. So maybe she was on, maybe she was onto something. Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with part two of this special Throwback Thursday episode with Dickie and Joe from the Boston's after a few words from our sponsors. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to the show. Well, here's the story. Is when, we, when we released it initially, it was for a benefit compilation that we were involved in putting out. There had been some shootings at women's health care facilities, at a women's health care facility in, in the Boston area. And so this compilation was called Safe and Sound. It came out before Let's Face It. And um, that's actually like that, that we put out that compilation and the song started to get, get played there. I remember the label got mad at us. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? It's like, we didn't know. And I think that kind of is testimony to the fact that I had, had been sort of soured. There's some other good songs on that, let's face it, record. So to me, I'd sort of lean towards, you know, you know, one to eight or some, some yeah. of those kind. So. I didn't know about impression, I fe- and it also felt so personal. Uh, a lot of people too think that the, you know it's the '90s too, so that the tested part—I've never been tested—was about AIDS testing, 
getting an AIDS test at the time. And, uh, and, and, and I didn't ever, if someone said, Oh, you know, it's about, you know, women's healthcare rights. And, and I never said, no, it's not. Uh, or, or in the same thing with, you know, HIV or, or AIDS, if someone said, you know, if it meant something to somebody who was suffering that way, then then I, I never took that away from anybody either. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective because you don't want to. <laughs> it's supposed to mean something to you know whatever it means to you, it means to you, and I, I wouldn't want to be so arrogant as to say, you know, it, it only means this. So, gotcha. Well, after the first chorus, we come back into just the band reintro that was at the top with the, with the reintro of the horn line, just. So catchy. We get into verse number two. Have you ever had the odds stacked up so high? You need a strength most don't possess. Or has it ever come down to do or die? You've got to rise above the rest. No? Well, and then the scream again. And <laughs> so set up this verse. That verse, I, I, wanted to get, I wanted to get rise above in it. And for Black Flag. So I, I wrote <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I, I promise you that's the truth. Rise above, we're gonna rise above. Make this story what we say. Rise above, we're gonna rise above. Try to stop what we do. Rise above, we're gonna rise above. I wanted to get that in there, and then I wrote the rest of it. Rise above, you know, like what did rise above mean to me, and what does, you know, and, and had I ever risen above anything? And when I start writing lyrics and I start putting things, I, I think of other people's lyrics and what that, you know, were important lyrics to me. And then, you know, so I, I guess you could say I, I stole Rise Above and having nothing to do with anything that Black Flag was saying. And then, and then I built around that. But in fairness, comes down to do or die. Ken Casey stole that from me and named his first record. <laughs> The Dropkick <laughs> Murphys, old Ken Casey, comes to the yeah. st- stole your lyric. He told me that on on the thread one time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get into chorus number two, same lyrics as chorus number one. And then there's an eight second musical interlude that only happens for this this part, which is now the bridge. And then there's uh, 10 seconds, which is basically the bridge is the intro guitar chords and it's a breakdown. And the lyric is, I'm not a coward. I've just never been tested. I like to think that if I was, I would pass. Look at the tested and think there. But for the grace go, I might be a coward. I'm afraid of what I might find out. Yeah, I love that lyric. Thank you. Talk about that. That's just, it just works so well. It's saying what I had said earlier is I'm, I, I know I'm not afraid, but then it kind of, it, it flips back to, well, have I ever really had anything to be afraid of? And, and I also, you know, cocky, arrogant, you know, Boston guy. Belly full of booze. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> high as a kite and just feeling it. No, uh, and and I thought, you know, that, that there were few challenges if, if presented to me that I couldn't handle. But the truth of the matter is in, in, in my more quieter and, and more kind of reflective moments or, or I guess I just really don't know. And you don't know until you are, until it is, you know, so you can go around saying, yeah, bring it on. But, um, you know, you don't know until you know or until it happens. So so that that's what I was sort of saying. It was it's sort of hedge, lyrically hedging your bets and and. Um, at the same time, you know, 
being honest. I think just being honest that you really don't know. You know, yeah. Yeah, I, that's what I would assess here. This this is this to me is an honest lyric, and I love that line number. I feel like one, I was dishonestly being honest. <laughs> <laughs> I love how I love how line number one says I'm not a coward, and the start of line four says might be a coward. So you're questioning <laughs> you're, you're questioning yourself there, and that that's what I love about the lyric. Yeah, well, thank you, Chris. Uh, this is difficult podcast because all the things you're saying mean a lot because you're not a chump. <laughs> yeah. I, thank you're, you. You're a guy that's you're a guy that's done it. You know, and been there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate so thank you. that. Yeah, thank, thank you. Uh, I noticed that when we come out of the, the bridge, you say what I might find out, and there's no scream. It just launches right back in to the third chorus. Yeah. Was there ever talk about a scream being there or to set that up or never talked about? I don't think we ever talked about that. I think I had trouble putting those lyrics in. I, I didn't have time for a scream. I was trying <laughs> to um, <laughs> rhythmically get that part down couple of quick questions so at what point you're in the rehearsal uh, space in boston you got the band in there the, the horn sections fired up they got their part and was this just another song on the record at that point another another one in the bunch or did you ever feel at that point we have something here it was honestly chris it was it was in the maybe pile for a long time to be honest with you wow no yeah. kidding we wrote a lot of songs for that record that's true and and, uh, and there was there was um the scream too, go to go backwards a little bit. The scream too could have been out of you know frustration and and like, you know where where is you know it might be the last of my great screams. People to this day go, oh, there's not enough Dickie's monster voice on on the Boston's record. But I, <laughs> you know, I, I felt like I made enough of those records that I I sort of wanted to start doing something a little different. But the scream was sort of like, ah. A little bit out of frustration in, in the in the process of of it all. Well, what the fans don't realize is you still have to scream uh, fifteen to sixteen to twenty times during a live show. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know the uh, that too. I was trying to make my work a little bit easier. The um, ending part, if to, if not to move this too fast on you, that was mocking the horn part towards the end. The saxophone all of a sudden starts playing this sort of different melodic idea, and then mm-hmm. and then I sort of mock. I sort of mocked that in a way that everybody liked. I love that part. We'll, we'll talk about this real quick, and then I have have one more question about uh, what Paul and Sean, the producers, thought, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But third chorus, same as the other choruses, then it has the reintro again. The reintro horn part comes in, and there's the sax that, that, that Dick was talking about just now. It comes in playing the chorus melody. gives me gives me chills every time i hear it and then it breaks down the b3 organ comes in and it's almost got this <laughs> hymnal church vibe that just takes over this beautiful and this is unlike anything you guys had done at this point the ending of this song how did that come together because it's a really odd way to end a song that's this heavy but it works on an epic level that's that's a good question it's one of those kind of magic studio sort of moments where it was maybe we hadn't thought of how we were going to end it right and then um 
we probably sent Kevin in and said, you know, what do you got? And he, and he laid that well, down. Well, that's the, sa- that's the same part from the top. So it's the same horn, horn part from the top, just sort of played one guy, a little bit different feeling, you know? So a little more I, soulful. I, agree, I agree with Dickie completely. It's likely that we just kind of played on. I mean, if you were to really pull it apart and listen, the bass gets flipped around. It's playing the wrong chords on top. It's played the inverted kind of chord progression, totally unintentional. You know, either a mistake from doing the overdubs or just like we tracked it and didn't notice that. Um, I think is a was a was sort of special thing, but it very well in, in today's day and age might have been something where we just edited that, made it shorter that end or something. But we're working on tape at that point, so right. when, you're, when you when you record to tape that way, you're kind of like a little bit more married to those decisions, and so the length of the song is a little bit more fixed. And so then your 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 t- conversations go to how are you going to use that space? And so like Dickie says, you know, hey, let's bring back that little lick from the top, you know, and then Dickie Dickie added those extra lyrics sort of in the same kind of melody and and then the whole thing just just went away you know in, in today's day and age we might have cut it, cut that and made it shorter or something well it and it's just it's so personal that last line the way that you just say and it, you're just kind of talking that's the impression that i get it just it feels so personal like you're in the room listening to somebody talk that that to you speak that to you it's it's such a great way to end a song when you brought the song to Paul Coldery and Sean Slade, the producers. What did they think of it? And as you were building the track, was there any excitement at that point or was it still just uh, another song? <laughs> if you know, if you know <laughs> Paul and Sean, there's very rarely excitement about anything. I mean, they <laughs> don't get me wrong. They enjoy working on music and, and I mean, they've made their lives around it and they're super talented musicians. By the way, that organ at the end, that would be Sean Slade, I, I would imagine. At that point, Dick, probably, it was probably, right? yeah, because yeah. that was before we started playing with Aronoff and that stuff, I think. So I think that was Sean Slade. He, you know, he played some organ. They had been in some cool bands in Boston in the 80s. Uh, the Sex Execs was a band that yeah. Paul and Sean went in. <laughs> Super talented guys. You know they don't they don't they don't fly too high or too low. You know they're like a lot of producers they 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 ride it and kind of keep it even because you got to get a lot of work done. You know. Yeah, they're really they're good like that, and then sometimes it gets frustrating where you think you do something incredible and there's just sort of a a, a flat line coming at you, and you're like, mm-hmm. which which keeps you grounded and and th- and things in perspective. But but uh, I think that they work hard, and but you know. I think they might not even to this day know it ever was on the radio. <laughs> no, they know. Believe me, Dick, they know. Oh, they do. All right. <laughs> you get the record mixed. You're driving around, I'm assuming, listening to a cassette at this point. That's what we did in the 90s. And you're listening to the record in context. Did it at any point before the label took this to radio, did it at any point hit you that, okay, there's this, this song's magic? Yeah. You know, th- there was an event when we were finishing the mix. We were at the Magic Shop in New York. Mm-hmm. And at that, at, at toward the end, the label like brought some people in, like they invited people into the studio to listen to our record or whatever. And you know, we had never really been in that position before. Um, and <laughs> that, that uh, well, no one wanted to hear it. But uh, you know, we played the record for people, and, and I think after that, there was a little bit more of a you know, our A our and R, Allison Hamamura, was a little bit more focused on that after that event that we had at the Magic Shop. 
So it was like radio people and, and, you know, program directors and press people and like maybe 50, 75 people. And um, they responded. Do you remember playing the track live before the record came out? I do. Because I'll tell you why I remember that. Because we were playing with um, Spring Hill Jack so much that they started to put that lick into their song, like the <laughs> horns part. Like this was like months before the record came out. Like they started, they started like yeah. comping that lick, that that little lick. So I know that we played it around New England. Fucking Pete. It was probably Pete, right? Yeah. Well, for, that for, asshole. For those that don't know, Spring Hill Jack. Uh, Pete Wazalewski, we call him JR and less than Jake. He played sax in Spring Hill Jack. And of course, Mr. Chris Rhodes, our uh, honorary member of Less Than Jake. We love him to death. He's a trombone player, of course, in the Boston's. They were in Spring Hill Jack, and I didn't know that they ripped off your song, those bastards. <laughs> <laughs> it was all in good fun. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, I just remember, um, you know, March the record came out. That summer we were on the Warp Tour with you guys, our first time ever doing it. We did uh, two and a half, three weeks up the East Coast. And it was just incredible. The song was blowing up that summer. It was everywhere and just such a such a great sing along. And and like I said, I, I can't recall one person having any issue. It was just it was undeniably boss tones. You guys did not change a damn thing about who you were. And all of us fans knew years before any of those label execs and all the number crunching idiots at the labels. We knew what what was special about this band yeah. and and it happened for you guys i'd like to get in now to uh to the new record and uh the, the brand new single the final parade Uh, released on January 25th of, of this year, 2021. Uh, the track is from your new record that's going to be, uh, or is on Hellcat Records. And uh, I think Tim Armstrong produced the song, correct? Yes. Along with Ted Hutt, they were co-producers on the project. Okay, yeah. and Ted Hutt's been a longtime producer of you guys. Mm-hmm. Great. So You think it's fair, <laughs> Joe, to say that Tim and, and Rancid probably had a lot to do with the album let's face it being what it was as well i'd say so wouldn't you say yeah having heard out come the wolves it was like we we realized okay it's it's not a crime to make good sounding songs so it, and be a songwriter and 30 years later we end up working with the guy and as joe mentioned producer ted hot too well this song Tell, tell me about this. The, an eight-minute ska song is ambitious, to say the least. So how, <laughs> it, how, did, did the song stupid. just keep growing? Or what, what, how how this whole thing begin? <laughs> when you invite, you know, 40 or 50 guests to a party, there's got to be enough room. So, uh, so for starters, you know, we got this half a dozen guys from your band in there. Yes, yeah, we got we got me me uh, me Jr. and Roger, of course, got Jimmy G from Murphy's Law, Toby Morrison, Rusty from H two O, John Feldman from Goldfinger, uh, Dan Vital from Bim Scala Bim, Dave from Big D and the Kids Table, uh, Amy Interrupter, Tim Armstrong. The list goes on and on. It's just the who's who. Amy Interrupter of, and all the interrupters. Yes, uh, it, it's it's the it's the who's who of ska. So was the track ever like a three minute song? Just a, just a tune you wrote that that it became this animal that it is. The track could have been two three-minute songs that we we <laughs> Frankenstein together. It could it could have been a lot of things. One of the things when you're going in the studio, likely you can relate to this, Chris. When 
producers want to cut, you know, well, no more than X number of songs are we going to take into the studio with us? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a, of an attempt to get two songs disguised <laughs> as one. <laughs> on the record. Really pulling back the curtain here. <laughs> it's like you guys entered into your, uh, your Russian dream theater, uh, Prague rock phase. One of the guys looked at me, said, he's like, well, the, my song is going to make the record. I'm calm down. I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Hold on. <laughs> we'll do it. But there can only be 13. So don't worry. I'll get to, it in uh, there. To, to answer your question, though, your original question, it did grow when, you know, w- when we're waiting to see who's going to uh, accept our invite to participate and what files we're going to get back and what people are going to sing and what they're going to send us and all that kind of stuff had us. I mean, really, it was it, it was the Rubik's Cube of our whole session. You know, it was the thing that required the most work at the end. It was the thing that needed the most work. And, you know, it was right up crunch time. There were people that we wish we, we could have gotten tracks from. But ultimately, um, ride or die with our squad. It was so cool that everyone was willing to participate, and it's uh, it's been a really fun thing. So cool. I mean, the, it made us emotional at some points that people were like, you, you know, not just should I jump, but how high, and you know, a testimony to the, to the friendships we've made and the people that we've decided to call our friends throughout the years of, of doing the Mighty Mighty Boston's. And and when I s- say that, I certainly speak of you, and less than Jake, but. Uh, at one point, Tim came in and he laid the whole thing out, and it was it was the, uh, and this will make you feel better. It was a 15 minute song. What? That? <laughs> yes. He just kept had it going and going. It was, you know, and and I let him do it, and then I'm like, we can't, Tim. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Good impression. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's the impression that you get. I certainly, I, I, I can't for the life of me think of many i mean there may have been some old dance hall reggae ska stuff that was just jams that went on for that long that's uh, what but- we wanted it to be was something that once you hit the dance floor so many times you, you know this not me but but maybe ben <laughs> would, be, would be out there dancing and he just wants to keep going and i think that that's what we wanted old school kind of moon stomp and just you know then this comes in then whoa and this and this giving you reason to to want to stay out there and just and have it you know it's, the, the it's, metamorphosis <laughs> takes place is you know i think that the one thing joe said to me one time he's like he was reading comments and stuff of people what people were saying about the song and he said you know the, the biggest complaint is it's not long enough and and I think that, that that was pretty made you feel good for, for sure. No, there were, I went down the reading comments last night on YouTube. There were just just so much love, so much outpouring from just your fan base, the Scott community in general. And it's funny you mentioned Ben Carr. I have it in my notes here. I I, I was thinking he's going to have to pull an oxygen tank around when you go into the song. And thank God it's not 15 <laughs> minutes. It's only eight. You kill poor Ben. We'll do it in the encore. We'll give him a break and then head out. <laughs> Final break. Here we go, Ben. So was this in, in your in your minds just a great way to, to set up the record by launching it? As no. A, it's, a, it, it's an ambitious first single. Well, you know, you know what? It was my idea to, to put it out there first, but I have to say, the way it came together, I always imagined there would be some element of this record that would be like kind of a community record, you know? And, and I think about a lot of the stuff that Tim's done with Tim Timebomb and friends and stuff, and like it always brings a cool energy when you inject someone, you know, unexpected into the mix, you know? And then. Uh, we were in the studio and, and I had an interest or we had it we we weren't going to get out of that studio without Tim singing something on this record that was for damn sure 
And that was what he that was what he wanted to sing on, and that just opened up conversations about like, well, who, what else could we do with it? You know, it was just sort of like we, we sat there in the studio for probably a half hour, just like mapping it out, writing, you know, uh, the arrangement. What we did know is because of the because of the quarantine, we knew that people had really good you know set up equipment to record at home. We knew that that you know no one was like, oh, I don't have except for me was I don't have the proper <laughs> equipment. Do you, I know you can't uh, talk about the name of the record yet. Do you have a release date? And not, do you know? It's, it's uh, getting sorted, sorted out. Getting sorted out. We, we're not, we can't even say whether we have a record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, ask, I, will, I will ask this. Is, is this the longest song on the new album? No, that's the shortest one. they didn't do a double album you did a a triple album (laughs) we were calling that song Inescada de Vida by the way (laughs) (laughs) love it love it so uh, guys I want to at this point I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to to talk to me Uh, the listeners are going to just love this you you opened up about impression I learned a ton about the song Uh, meant everything obviously that I I said about it Uh, congratulations on the final parade congratulations on still doing this at the level that that you're doing it is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners uh, uh, with uh, outside of what we talked about Dickie, should we sing them a little something that we've been trying try to do something? Can we Get go to the phones? Can we go to the phones? We got yeah, Jim sorry. on line four. Yeah, go for Jim. I don't know. How, I don't know. What, I, don't, I don't have much to say except that we're really looking forward to seeing people. Hopefully, someday soon. You know, I, it's it's nice to see you. You know, we're lucky to have had this project to work on together. It was a crazy time to try and do something, and, and we kind of were lucky to put together the, a cool team of people, like the right team of people that, you know, it was just, I feel like we made made something of, of a, a shitty situation, and so on that level, I'm, I'm happy, and um, just like people to know that we hope to see you soon, and we, we miss you. Being able to connect with other musicians many of whom are my friends it makes me feel like i'm still out there doing it because it's been very strange being a touring musician not to be out there and just not to not to be some a social guy i like to hang out and talk to my friends so i, I totally relate mm-hmm. to totally relate to what you just said yeah big time it's great to see you man great to see you too thank you guys so much for being on thanks bud Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed Throwback Thursday. I like Throwback Thursday. I hope this encourages everyone to go back and check out some episodes you might not have listened to before or re-listen to one that you really enjoyed. That's right. We got a great back catalog of guests for you to enjoy. We'll see you next time. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriel, Jimmy G. from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions and lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun.
Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.